Chris. How are you? Oh my God. It's been so freaking long. I am awesome now. Yeah. How are you? Um, I'm tired uh, because I spent most of last week in Oregon and I got back late last night. And so I'm jet lagged and underslept. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So just like the old days, we're back in the saddle and we're, we haven't like changed an iota since we last saw each other. Yeah, basically. That's kind yeah. of pretty much what's happened. Super busy and tired and Kara doing a poor job managing jet lag, which you know very well how poorly I manage West Coast jet lag. It takes me a whole month. Yeah, so. but this is just three hours and yet still I'm like, mm, I can't that, function. Doesn't matter. I, any time shift throws me off. Even the one hour going to visit you throws me off. Really? Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The one hour is not too bad for me, but... I mean, it's not yeah. too bad, but it's definitely not <laughs> awesome. But yeah, going going to the West Coast, I struggled. But I mean, I guess the good thing was the conference kept us busy from like 8 to 9. So I was forced to stay awake, which was probably the best way for me to handle it. Oh, yeah. What conference were you at? I was at the International Congress on Physiological Anthropology conference mm. or is it the international congress it might be the international congress on physiological anthropology Sweet. just like you i cannot keep my acronyms straight that's all good I'm just, <laughs> just, just joshing just joshing but speaking of joshing got to hang out with josh snodgrass while i was there so that was really nice and for oh, those who joshing. don't know he is the uh, president for the human biology association that's right and if you if you don't know now you know you and you should also, also listen to the two podcast interviews we did with him a couple years ago because he is a fantastic human being. Right on. And what'd you do yeah. with your summer? It's been like 17 months since I saw you. 17 months. Oh my God. That maybe, long. Maybe three. I was in Texas for a big chunk of the summer. Uh, finally getting this uh, collaborative grant with uh, doctors Libby Kogel and Scott Maddox up off the ground. Because we got the grant like a month before the world shut down due to the pandemic. And so this is the first summer we've actually been able to do some things and still got hit with weird COVID-related delays because of supply chain issues and all that. Yeah, How about you? Here. Yeah, same. I I actually got to the field, but um, the field was supposed to be American Samoa and Samoa, and travel wasn't open to get to uh, to get to both places. I think I don't even know if both places are still open yet, but till July, and I needed to you know get all the paperwork done sooner. So we ended up doing our field work in Hawaii this summer, and are still waiting on permissions for data collection in Samoa. Mm. But, um, you know, I can't complain about getting to spend my summer in Oahu, right? It was awesome. We made some great connections. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll talk more about that at a later time. But I also had a book come out. Yeah, you! Yay, me! Uh, you might not complain about Hawaii, but I will totally complain about being in Texas for the summer, where at one point it hit 117 degrees and I burned myself on my seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, Given that it's going to hit 97 again this week, here in Alabama, uh, much like in Texas, I discovered the difference of like the tro what, what's different about the tropics than living in deep south, which feels tropical. We don't have any fucking breezes down here and all the mosquitoes. Oh, my God. Oh. The mosquitoes and the lack of breezes make the heat so much more miserable. The so lovely interesting. Like Fort Worth, though it was 117 degrees, there was a breeze, but it just blew the hot air at you. Mm. So it felt like you were walking outside and had a thousand hair dryers all pointed at you at once. Well, you need to get those new um, portable air conditioners, the football teams. I bet Notre Dame has some of those. 
where they walk around with the air conditioner and stick the nozzle down people's shirt and blow cooled air. I know I mean, you guys they have. They must we have, have some for various travel games, but like I can't imagine they're being super useful in the Midwest. Georgia and Alabama traveled with these giant machines to their their games this weekend. They should just bring like a refrigerated truck and let people go into it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like a traveling morgue that got very morbid very quickly. That would be cool. (laughs) (laughs) See that joke I did right there? That would be cool. (laughs) Uh, Yay, puns. Do we want to introduce our person? Yeah. Do we want to say who we are? (laughs) You're right. Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. I am Chris Lynn from the University of Alabama, and this is our new season, first episode of our new season of The Sausage of Science, and I am Kara Ackerbach from the University of Notre Dame, and who knows what order this is going to go in based on the, the chit-chat previous to this. We, we actually get a special guest to start uh, our series off this season. Our, our special guest is actually one of our own, one of our public relations team members. It is Andrea Silva Caballero, who is wrapping up her PhD at UK Durham, but she is from Mexico and currently lives in Mexico. And she completed her BA in biological anthropology from the National School of Anthropology and History in Mexico City focusing on medical anthropology with pediatric populations. She then went to the UK for her um, um, MSc in evolutionary medicine and is a member of the Durham Infancy and Sleep Center, which should give you a little uh, hint at what she studies. So her area of research has been looking at biomedical ideas concerning sleep, specifically among adolescents. And examining and comparing adolescent sleep patterns. And so her dissertation uh, conducted in Mexico was looking at sleep patterns among adolescents in, uh, I think, Campeche, Puebla, and then Mexico City as two rural and one urban sites. And she's looking at um, the phase shifts. And so she sent us some papers. She sent us a poster that she got the E.E. Hunt Award for at last year's meeting, which I believe you got at one point, right, Kara? Um, Yes. Was it the E.B. Hunt which the, one was it? That's the student award. And there are now two student awards there for outstanding presentation ones. posters. So yeah. I remember looking at the list and I'm pretty sure you were on there. I got one of them, but I don't remember which one. I think at that time <laughs> there was only the hunt. So you you and somebody else were. Sam Erlacher and I, I think, yeah. got it the same year. So Andrea got a, uh, the award for a poster that's very similar to the title of her her manuscript that he shared with us today, which is Non-Weird Circadian Rhythms. Is there an adolescent shift in sleep timing? And, and she co-authored the manuscript with Helen Ball, Karen Kramer, and Gillian Bentley. That's a high-powered authorship. Right? Fun. So she should be joining us here in just a sec. Hello. I've been here the whole time. I didn't know how to join. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> now I'm here. <laughs> well, we are delighted to have you on as the show since you are one of our junior fellows and we work closely with you. Uh, and because you were this past year's uh, Hunt Award winner at the, the 2022 HBA. So welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's a no. <laughs> we are the ones who are honored. Uh, so... Because you are one of the the junior fellows and you've been working with us, I'm sure you know how we start the podcast every single time. And that is to learn a little bit more about you and what your your journey in anthropology 
was and is and how you got into it and how you decided to investigate sleep in adolescence. So <laughs> it all started back in 1987. No, that's not true, but <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Um, it's just, I was born and raised in a family of geologists and um, biologists, chemists, geographers, and they all, um, they were all deeply interested in history and archaeology. So I grew up thinking, oh, wouldn't it be awesome to be, I don't know, a paleontologist? <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I must confess that I also dreamt about being an artist or um, a writer or even a firewoman. I was advised against being a firewoman though. So I, I didn't. And uh, <laughs> at some point I learned about um, human biology. And because it combined evolution and biology and history and field work, I was like, oh my God, I want to study that. That's what I was seeking. Um, so wait, why were you advised not to be a firewoman? Apparently because it was um, highly risky and uh, not very well paid in Mexico. So, <laughs> yeah, but it sounded exciting. So in the end, I, I enrolled the National School of History and Archaeology, Archaeology and History uh, to study human biology as my BA. And um, I finished. And then I started doing my, my bachelor thesis. And this bach bachelor thesis was aimed at studying like the social cultural representations of uh, collect lip in a group of youngsters who uh, were attending a pediatric hospital in Mexico City. So they were between 20 years and 18 years old, something like that. And I was particularly interested in looking at the links between human diversity, these different sort of faces, <laughs> uh, health and developmental context. So that's how I got interested in evolutionary medicine. That's why I went to the UK, in, to Durham University, to study uh, evolutionary medicine. And that's, that's the place where I met my supervisors, my PhD supervisors. So in particular, Gillian Bentley knew that all these small parentheses <laughs> I, before going to, to the UK, I did an internship in a sleep lab in Mexico City. And that experience made me fall in love with the topic. Like, I, I, I thought this is so interesting. And uh, I feel like uh, anthropologists, and particularly biological anthropologists, have so much to say about this. Uh, I would love to do some research focusing in on sleep. So Gillian uh, Bentley knew this and she was the one who told me, hey, why don't you just do a PhD focusing on adolescent sleep? We could do that. We, can, we could ask uh, Helen Ball to join the project. So we did that. She agreed. I got funding from the Mexican government and um, that's how it all started. 
So I have to apologize to Jillian because I we have um, Jillian Bentley and Gillian Ice that are both senior members of our organization, and their names are spelled the same. And I always get flip flop who's Jillian and who's Gillian. So I read that wrong when I was introducing you. So it, when she listens, I I apologize. Um, now now you successfully you're you're recently defended your dissertation or doing your revisions, I happen to know, but you were kind enough to share a paper that you guys are getting ready to submit. And you also shared the poster from the conference. Um, and they are about the uh, adolescent uh, shift in sleep timing. Um, and in the paper, you're testing a specific hypothesis called the social jet lag hypothesis among adolescents at, and you're com comparing um, industrial sites, so Mexico City is your industrial site, and Campeche and Puebla are your two non-industrial sites. So first, can you tell us what the social jet lag hypothesis is and, and, and what it predicts or suggests about adolescent sleep that you were looking at? So the social jet lag refers to the misalignment, yeah, like a mismatch uh, between our endogenous circadian clock that sounds a little bit uh, weird but it's basically uh, it's a clock that is dependent on the day, uh, the day night cycle so uh, if there's light then uh, we are active and if uh, there's no light then we get sleepy right so uh, that's controlled by our uh, circadian clock and then we also have the social clock and um, this social clock is engined is that um, a word <laughs> engined by our activities um social commitments and um even did you say you said ancient engine like uh, a motor i don't know like oh engine. you know that engine yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, by our activities and uh, social commitments and even individual <laughs> so you mean okay so i understand what you're saying so you're saying it's driving us you mean it, it's it driving drives, exactly yeah, yeah. thank you yes yeah so it's called a misalignment because the social clock uh, does not necessarily match the daylight cycle which is our main circadian trainer and this is particularly true in industrial and post-industrial societies. Why? Because we have access to electric lights and with those electric lights, we are able to continue our activities until late night. And also we have this sedentary um, indoors lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So um, the places where we sleep are shielded from environmental changes such as changes in temperature, humidity, noise, uh, wind, I don't know, also the moon or the, the sunlight. That's, that's the social jet lag hypothesis. And according to this hypothesis, uh, adolescents living in non-industrial environments will be more entrained to the daylight cycle. They won't endure or, or have sleep curtailment during weekdays. So sleep curtailment is this difference between the amount of sleep we're having during uh, weekends and the amount of sleep we're having during weekdays. 
So if uh, we're sleeping less during weekdays, then we are supposed to have a sleep bed or a sleep curtailment. I am feeling this, although I am not an adolescent. Uh, as I was telling Chris at the beginning, I spent most of last week uh, on the West Coast, which is three hours behind, uh, for a conference. And it was a conference that had us going from eight in the morning until nine at night. And so that social clock that you're talking about that controls the circadian rhythm, I'm feeling those effects very, very hard right now. And so uh, what is it about adolescence? Uh, if you could go into a little bit more of, of why adolescence, why things might be changing or why those clocks might be a little bit different compared to, say, adults. Compared to children, adolescents have later sleep-wake schedules. Um, so mm -hmm. this, um, this shift towards late sleep schedules um, have been has been um, associated with puberty onset. So this shift is potentially associated with sexual and cogn uh, cognitive maturation. However, the exact mechanism underlying this shift remains a mystery. So it could be due to changes in intrinsic circadian period of adolescence, that is um, the internal day light length, like each of us has like uh, internally our clock has an um, estimate of how, how long the day lasts. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe the adolescents have um, a longer uh, circadian period, like maybe their, their bodies think that um, the days are longer. Um, that's one option. And then um, it's possible that they also experience changes in their sensitivity to light. So perhaps when sun comes out, they aren't as sensi uh, sensitive to the sun and that's why they keep sleeping longer. And the same goes when uh, the same would happen when uh, it darkens. So because they aren't so sensi sensitive to the changes in, in in light, it would be easier for them to go to sleep later. It's also possible that there are some difference, differences after puberty in melatonin secretion. So melatonin is the hormone in charge of making us sleepy in absence of sunlight. So if um, the amount of melatonin changes, maybe uh, it will be harder for adolescents to go to sleep on time, hmm. or whatever that means. If I apply this to my life, right? Um, and, and the funny the irony here is at the very end of the last season, we interviewed Kristen Knutson about sleep chronotypes, and we're starting off this season with sleep. So there, there's a lesson here, and, and here it is. So we already learned that, like, you know, you're going to bed early, getting up early, you know, has, has mental health effects. And we were, we were asking her about that last time. And COVID has really messed with my sleep cycle. That and, and uh, ironically, my kids growing up, moving out and getting tenure, like I didn't have to get up early anymore. So I started letting myself sleep and um, my depression got so much worse. And I kept uh, just letting myself sleep. I'd, ha I'd sleep late and I'd, I'd stay up late and I was, I was miserable all summer. So I, um, I, I set, I forced myself to start getting up at 7am again, like I used to when I was trying to 
earn tenure and, and be productive. And I feel a lot better. You know, I'm going to bed at 10, getting up at 7, and I feel so much better. Meanwhile, I have these three 19-year-olds in my house, right, my kids, when they come home, they get up at the ass crack of dawn to go to school, complain all the time, not the ass crack of dawn, but, you know, they get up when I'm getting up, and they complain, but on the weekends, they'll sleep till noon, no problem. You know, I wonder, Andre, what, what's your sleep cycle like? It's a complete mess. If I have a deadline, I will most probably sleep very late. Uh, I would go to sleep perhaps at 3 a.m. or something like that because I just, I don't know, I feel I work better at night. But I haven't been always like this. So, <laughs> so That's yeah. not my real question. I was just curious what the sleep researcher's sleep is like. So I, I, I don't have to feel bad when the sleep researcher is, has just as wacky of a schedule as I have. Yeah, no. So it's uh, quite ironic because we are always advising to have a routine, a healthy routine and, you know, uh, please exercise and eat healthy and sleep on time. And then we are the first ones. Uh, just we never, exactly never listen to our own research ever. <laughs> we are the worst. Absolute worst. Yes. Maybe you could walk us through of what your data collection actually looked like on the ground. So what sort of data you collected and, you know, what your experiences were, were like and how they were different in the three different contexts in which you collected data. I was interested, yeah, in gathering data, sleep data from adolescents. So I did that using actigraphy devices, um, which are these sort of wrist watches that tell you how active people are during the day. And based on that, you can actually estimate when they want to sleep and how long their sleep lasts. But I was also very curious to learn more about their sleeping environments. So I also, I interviewed them and uh, I also, I, I was this, I don't know, I think I was a sort of stalker maybe because I would follow them <laughs> inside the school, but also outside the school to get to know um, if they were working outside the school and what, how, yeah, what sort of work did they do? If they worked at far, maybe farming or washing cars, or did they have a bakery store or something like that? So that was pretty common. Uh, and I was also interested in getting to know more about the sleeping surfaces there was sleeping on. So mm -hmm. in, in Campeche, where I was working with Maya adolescents, they were sleeping on hammocks. And then in Puebla, with the, where I was working with Totonac adolescents, they were sleeping on wooden surfaces but also on mattresses. And then in Mexico City, everyone would sleep on mattresses. So there was a difference there. But also there was a difference regarding uh, whether we're sleeping alone or maybe sleeping with others, which is known as co-sleeping. These uh, kids in rural sites would normally sleep with others. They're maybe their parents or their siblings. But adolescents in, in Mexico City would sleep more frequently alone. Like they would practice solitary sleep. So that's another difference. And then something very interesting found is um, that 
adolescents in urban, but also in rural sites. Seem to be afraid, perhaps, tonight, I'm not sure. <laughs> but they keep a light on, uh, a lot of them kept a light on while sleeping. And I found that uh, pretty interesting, especially in, in Puebla, in the Sierra Norte de Puebla, uh, with the Totonac adolescents. So when I was working there, it was the season of the Day of the Dead. And the dead ones were really present in their lives. I would ask them, do you have any problems while sleeping? And, you know, like nightmares and I don't know, do you, do you encounter problems when falling asleep or mm -hmm. awakening or, you know? And they would tell me, well, I, I normally wake up because I have nightmares. And I was like, and why do you think you have so many nightmares? And then they would tell me, well, because it's almost November. And I didn't understand that. I was like, and what? Yeah, like, <laughs> I was one thing related with the other. Yeah. So, yeah, until one participant actually explained to me, like, well, you know, it's just that uh, the day of the, uh, the death is nearby. And so the dead ones start being more active and they... Sometimes they appear in our uh, sleep, in our mm. dreams. Yeah, so th that was like, oh, I did this click. Like, oh, wow. So then when I also, I asked them, like, so it's that why you keep the lights on or, or what? And they were like, yeah, because if lights are turned off, then I can see all the ghosts and the dead ones. But if the lights are on, then I see nothing. So I, I feel safe and I can sleep. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, it, that was really interesting. Yeah. So, so you found the least industrialized area actually had the most unnatural or they were the, the least what you would consider natural according no. to your paper. Is that what? Actually, there was this gradient say that, um, obviously kids in Mexico city have this, um, urban industrialized way of life. And then kids in Puebla, the Totonac kids, they led a, um, like a traditional farm, um, agricultural way of life, but they had, a a more uh, easy access to electricity. Mm. So not also, not only easy, but also steady. Like um, they would, they would have like a reliable source of electricity. Um, however, they didn't have um, internet connection or these um, screen-based devices like uh, cell phones or those mm -hmm. things, oh, at least not not all of them, like most of them wouldn't. And then um, kids in Campeche, the Maya teenagers, they were the most isolated. So there's this sort of gradient. So while I was doing field work with them, like electricity system would come down uh, or fall down constantly because of the heavy rains. And it was pretty common that uh, there was no electricity in the village. Uh, the the kids didn't have uh, access to mobile cell phones. Mm. So I would say the most isolated or traditional community I was working with. So mm -hmm. you have this interesting interaction between technology as well as religious beliefs. 
and difference in, of course, light because of technology. But then you also brought up that people co-sleep or kind of the social sleeping. Could you tell us what that social sleeping is and then what you found, what differences you found? Yeah, well, social sleeping refers to whether people sleep alone or practice solitary sleep, which is uh, something that in Western-like settings, clinicians normally tell us we should sleep. Uh, like we should sleep in a closed uh, environment with a co on a cozy mattress with the lights off and alone, you know, like a cocoon. <laughs> but that's not the way most of the people sleep. Most of the people actually practice social sleep or they co-sleep. And that can be lying on the same surface with someone else or maybe just sleeping. Maybe in one room there are two or more beds. And so that's co-sleeping, basically sharing the room or maybe sharing the bed. But I would even go beyond that because <laughs> sleep is also controlled, socially controlled. Like um, in the for, um, for example, adolescents are sometimes told when to go to sleep. So there are parents set bedtimes. So it's also uh, like a social constraint of whether they, when they must go to sleep. And there also exists um, some ways of helping adolescents wake up. <laughs> so maybe again, maybe the parents wake the kids up or maybe they set up an alarm. So there are other ways of, you know, like controlling when people are going to sleep and when they are waking up that are also affecting the way adolescents experience sleep. Yeah. So did you find a difference between the, what you called your industrial and your non-industrial sites with the adolescent sleep? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, so in the uh, most traditional site, which uh, is Campeche, adolescents were, um, adolescent sleep was like more uh, sensitive to social cues and also light cues. So, um, which, uh, well, and that's something that I didn't see in, in Mexico City, of course, once more, because Sleep is normally sol solitary, and teenagers sleep in enclosed environments. But in Campeche, traditional uh, housing isn't really shielded from environmental cues. I mean, there's, yes, there's some buffering, <laughs> but it's not uh, perfect. So, and I was also sleeping there, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so as soon as the sun comes out, you know, life starts. So there are roosters, there are a lot of bugs and insects, and you just need to wake up. You need to wake up. Um, yeah, and their sleep was definitely influenced by these light cues, but also by social cues. So, and this, this is also quite huh, surprising because in Campeche, if I'm not mistaken, kids who practiced co-sleeping would go to sleep um, later, which also talks, refers to how different sleep can be depending on who you're sleeping with. So in this case, if you sleep with adults who will probably stay 
up until late night, uh, then your sleep will uh, also happen later. But if you sleep with perhaps children, then your sleep won't be as effective. So that's one thing. And this is regarding sleep timing. But also I found that sleep duration is affected by by co-sleeping. So uh, in Campeche and in Mexico City, if kids were co-sleeping, their sleep duration will would decrease, like mm. would shorten. But in Puebla, where these kids were so afraid about spirits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, when they co-slept, their sleep duration would, would increase. So mm -hmm. probably because they felt safer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. So then, what are your your plans moving forward? You're you're wrapping up your PhD. Are you hoping to go back to these three sites when maybe it's not De, de los Muertos? Uh, but yeah, so what, what are the future plans for you? Well, I would love to keep working on this topic. I just, I, I don't know. I, I love working with adolescents. That's weird, but I love working with them. They, yeah. I love them. They are so honest. <laughs> they have no filters, <laughs> even though when, when they can be rude at times, but you know, you know what, what they mean and that they are true. <laughs> I would love to go back to my, uh, to these field sites. I don't know, maybe test uh, how they are sleeping across different seasons. And also I would love to perhaps study sleep in societies that don't have formal school and schooling because all of these three sites have a formal schooling so one could argue well yeah you are trying to see if social jet lag is uh, to test yeah you're trying to test social jet lag but maybe you should test it in places with no formal schooling, because maybe you can find the so-called natural sleep instead of going to places where, yeah, they they have a agricultural way of life, but they still need to go to school. So I don't know. It would be really interesting, interesting to see uh, how adolescents that don't attend formal schooling do sleep. Do you have a postdoc or job or anything lined up you want to tell us about, or is that a secret? It's a secret, yes. All right. We love, we love, I love that there's a secret that eventually, hopefully, we'll learn about. Yeah, no, no, it's not a secret. So, yeah, I'm applying to different uh, postdocs, mainly to one of them is for a writing rant. I don't know if I will get it. I hope I do. Yeah, because I need to publish my results, right? But um, I'm also applying for a postdoc uh, with a very well-known researcher. <laughs> uh, we know. No yeah. word though yet, huh? <laughs> yeah, you don't know the results? No, I really don't know yet. Um, so, but hopefully we'll know soon. And if not, I, I'll just keep knocking on doors. And see. Our, our listeners yeah. will cross their fingers and toes for you. So when you're not sleeping or reading about sleeping or researching sleeping, yeah, what do you do? What do you do with yourself? 
uh, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> like, is there a life beyond, beyond work? No, I, um, I'm a swimmer, so I swim a lot. What's I your do. favorite style of swimming? My favorite style? Your favorite stroke? Um, backstroke. Backstroke. Okay. Backstroke. Yeah. yeah. Well, my favorite is, um, what's the name of this one? The, the, butterfly. The, the butterfly. Yeah. Butterfly. Yeah. But I'm really slow. So oh, those are the two hardest awkward. ones. Yeah. Butterfly <laughs> is a, a very awkward stroke. For sure. I could never get it right. <laughs> so hard. And backstroke. I suck. My legs always sink. Oh, I can do backstroke, but I can't aim. I, I, I can't right into in the wall. Straight line. Like, <laughs> going okay. all over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else? Anything fun you're reading, watching, or listening to these days? It's just I don't know if it's fun. To me, it's like oh, huh. this is so interesting, but maybe it's not so fun to others. So for a while, a while I I have been wanting to read a biography of. Ramon y Cajal. Ah. So this is the guy who um, described the neurons for the first time. Hmm. And uh, he's supposed to have a very interesting life. And uh, in fact, he does. Like, I didn't know a lot of him, uh, a lot about him. So he wanted to be an artist. And, uh, I, yeah, he I know the name from teaching physiological psychology, so I can't wait to hear about that book. You'll have to tell us. Yeah, yeah, but it's hard to get this book. So I, I actually had to travel to Spain and get it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, no, I was already in Spain, but I yeah. No, we're just gonna say you traveled to Spain <laughs> traveled, to get this yeah, book. Exactly. <laughs> we're gonna keep that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. um yeah, I will tell you all about the book. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for your time and the really fascinating research that you are doing. Um, congratulations again on getting the uh, presentation poster award at the HBAs this past year. And we will keep all of our digits crossed for you and postdoc hopes. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate your, <laughs> your wishes. <laughs> and... Uh... This has been, uh, I keep meaning to do this. So we've been talking to Andrea Silva Caballero. Um, is there a way that people can find you on the internet if they want to learn more about your work that you would like to share with folks? Twitter, email, uh, website page, Instagram, TikTok, I don't know. <laughs> All the things. Yeah, they can find me on Twitter. Um, the thing is, my um, I have a, a, a rare name. In Twitter, so I'm um, at Barbie Transformer. <laughs> That's me. So. At Barbie Transformer. All right, and yes. I have been Chris, and I have been Kara, and this has been the Sausage of Science. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.